0: morning, Church, and to those of you who are streaming online, <coughs> you can open your Bibles to Job, <coughs> chapter 23. <coughs> uh, I thought it, it's wise to just take a break from James. Uh, I, I initially was going to continue it, but we've had some challenges with the recording, and I wasn't sure if we would be able to record this morning. morning. <coughs> But I wanted to keep uh, the recording of James. Uh, um, I wanted to preach and make sure that we are able to record that uh, sermon. Um, So this morning I'm going to take a break from James and we're going to look (coughs) at a couple of different passages. As we consider the nature and the character of God, (coughs) the unchanging nature of God is what I will be talking about. In the light of recent (coughs) events. In January, on January 7, 1855, a 20-year-old young pastor in England rose to the podium to preach a sermon on God. This was his introduction. I quote, It has been said that the proper study of mankind is man. I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings and the existence of the great God whom he calls his father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a vast it is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pri- pride is drowned in its infinity." End quote. This young man was Charles Spurgeon at 20 eloquently express the importance of the knowledge of God, the importance of understanding who God is. Recently, as I was going through uh, the scriptures, I was extremely encouraged when I look at the historical record of saints who were suffering. And one constant reality emerged, whether it was prophecy about exile or experiencing loss like Job. One truth that comes up quite often is that God is magnified. Job looks to God and magnifies his glory. David looks to God and glories in his majesty. God magnifies his nature as he prophesies about future exile. Why? Because the anchor for the soul is not making it to the next day. It is not getting through the affliction. The anchor for the child of God is knowing God. The knowledge of God is what ought to keep us faithful. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they know the true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is what life is, knowing you. This is the anchor for the soul of man. Knowledge of God should not only comfort us and direct our conduct, but govern the way that we think about life, death, and yes, COVID. One of the ways that Scripture presents God is by showing His uniqueness. He is set apart from anything and everyone else, including that which is called and worshipped as God. What is evident is that the name of God, Yahweh, or Lord in our Old Testament uh, translation, is part and parcel of this uniqueness. In Deuteronomy 32, 39, God says, See now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none That can deliver out of my hand. No one can stand against the work of God. Isaiah 40 verse 18 through to 20 says, To whom will you liken God? And what likeness compares with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it and, and goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for its silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. In other words, he seeks in vain to make for himself a god. Who can we liken to God? The answer is no one, for no one compares to his greatness and his power. God is absolute. He is unique. Why does scripture show God's uniqueness and complete otherness? Well, number one, it is to show that he is trustworthy, to show that unlike the leaders of this world, unlike the professionals of this world, unlike the news media of this world, God can be trusted always. There is no one who compares to him, <clears throat> There is generally one thing about God that stands out to each and every one of us. And generally, <clears throat> some of us know the names of God, and so we attach our confidence and our hope to some of the names of God or some theological attribute or perfection of God. For instance, these are some of the names of God, El Elyon, the Most High God. El Holam, the everlasting God. <clears throat> El Shaddai, the almighty God. <clears throat> Yahweh, Yare, And we know it as Jehovah Jireh, which is actually incorrect. There is no such name as Jehovah in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. Translations have Jehovah, but that's not the name of God. And Jireh is actually Yare, and so it's... Yahweh, Yareh, the Lord provides. Yahweh, Shalom, the Lord is our peace. Yahweh, Roi, the Lord, my shepherd. Yahweh, Tesekinu, the Lord, our righteousness. Or Yahweh, Shema, the Lord is there. In various situations, these, name, these names come up to demonstrate the nature of God. To show God's people an attribute about his perfection or who he is and it brings comfort to them. When we know the depths of these meanings of the names of God, it changes the way that we think about God. It changes the way that we think about life. It changes the way that we respond to life. Now that may be true on the other spectrum uh is the fact that there may be something that confuses us about God. Like, for instance, how God is infinite. Ever thought about that? How He does not have a beginning, and He cannot have any end. Finite beings cannot comprehend that, because we only know of things that have beginnings. How can God know everything all the time, without confusion. Uh, There are those of us who are a little bit older than others and who have a little bit more understanding and knowledge of life. And sometimes information gets confused. Um, I remember dealing with my dad in his uh, uh, final uh, days of life and how confused he was on simple things. What about the... immensity of God and his omnipresence that's confusing we don't fully understand how God can be everywhere all the time above the earth in the earth and even below the earth he is the Lord finiteness cannot comprehend the vast expanse of the fullness of the essence of God Being astounded by God and the lack of understanding of the fullness of God both exist, number one, to humble us and number two, to cause us to pursue Him more. We don't know everything about God. God is both incomprehensible and inexhaustible. We cannot fully understand Him and we can never fully understand Him. Today, we may know more about Him than we did previously, but still, we don't know everything about God. That means there is much to discover about our great God. <clears throat> and most of us are at different stages of our lives in our Christian walk. Some of us have, have graduated to a different level of spirituality or sanctification where others are still drinking some milk. But it doesn't matter. All of us know something about God and some of us have a different response to the knowledge that we have about God. But one thing that is true about everybody in our congregation and in this world, if you take all of our information about God and put it together, it is still not the expanse and the fullness of who God is. God is incomprehensible. But as we discover these truths, they should not only warm our hearts, but affect our lives, affect the way that we think about life, affect the, the way that we respond to life. One of these perfections or attributes, as you know it, that has dramatically changed the way that I see life is this. The Lord is absolute and unchanging in his essence. That is what I want to speak to you about God's essential nature is the highest degree of absolute perfection. There are two realities in this proposition. Number one is God is absolute and God is absolutely consistent. When I use the word absolute, I'm using it as an adjective in the sense of supreme. God is supreme, unsurpassed, unquestionable, matchless, unbounded in nature. The superlative, incomparable, highest measure of all things is God. He is the standard. He is the highest measure of perfection. And this absolute standard is revealed in his immutability. When I use the word immutability, it's that nature of God which causes him never to be able to change. He's consistently the same always and ever (coughs) forever. He's always and ever self-satisfied and complete for eternity. Wow. That uh, it blows my mind to think about that. There is nothing that God will ever learn. Ever wondered about that? There is nothing that, that will add to the information that God has. He is full understanding, full knowledge, full wisdom. God knows everything perfectly and completely all the time. I know some of us think that our parents are like that, especially kids. Mom is the all-seeing eye, right? She knows all. (laughs) She's wise over all. God is the standard of knowledge. He is understanding And wisdom. He needs nothing more than himself. To make up his mind. We on the other hand. We love affirmation. We need affirmation. We want to be confirmed. Because we don't know. The implication of this reality. Is that God is never affected by anything. He remains consistent. Unwavering and immutable. All the time. Think about that. Just imagine the impact of this reality on life. If God is ever knowing, ever mindful of every eventuality, of every decision and circumstance, and that no matter how we try, you can never surprise God. The only logical thing for us to do is to surrender to this great and awesome God. Consider this In the light of COVID, God perfectly acts in accordance with his own will without external influences. God alone is absolutely free to act with no objections to his will or actions. We see God's unchallenging activity or unchallenged activity In the book of Job. And that's where we will start this morning. Job chapter 23. If you remember. In the beginning of the book of Job. When the sons of God. Which is generally used of angels. Come to demonstrate. Or show themselves before God. It is God. That brings up the name of Job. To Satan. And God. Says this of Job. That he is a righteous man. A man who is blameless and upright, who turns away from evil and fears God. What a testimony that God would say that of a man. God knew Job. God knew that Job was immovable in his faith. Yet despite this high and lofty commendation, God places Job in the classroom of affliction by the hand of Satan. Why? So that Job's faith might be put on display, yes. But also so that Job's character may be furnished, yes. But moreover, so that Job's faith may become manifest and be a testimony of what it looks like to trust God in the midst of affliction. In the midst of pain and hardship and and suffering, Job looks to God. Job reveals his knowledge about God and it is this that sustains him through his trials. Look at Job 23 verse 13. But he, this is God, is unchangeable and who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. I'm going to try to get through four realities about God, starting in this verse. Number one, it is this. God's immutability also shows his absoluteness. The word unchangeable here in this verse is actually the word one or singular from the Hebrew word echad. Can you turn the number one around? What happens if you turn one around? It's still one, right? One remains one. It is singular no matter from what angle you look at it. And Job used the simplest uh, numerical form to illustrate God's unchanging and unchangeable nature. He's not divisible. Now you may be thinking, smarty pants, what about a half? Because one can be half. That's not how Hebrews thought. The simplest form was singular. One. He alone is wholly complete within himself. Therefore, there is no one who can cause God to turn from what he's established and purposed to do. Notice what it says in verse 13. He is unchangeable. Who can turn him back? The answer is no one. If he set his mind on something, he's going to perform that. In fact, look what he says. What he desires, that he does. In some translations says, that he will do. For he will complete what he appoints for me. And many such things are in his mind. He will complete, or the word here is to bring full circle. What he appoints for me, what God has decided to do about my life and for my life, he will bring to pass. In other words, God will never be moved by or from his plan. Look at 15 through to 17. Therefore, this is the response. I am terrified at his presence. I stand in fear Or I myself, in myself, dread his presence. Why? Because God is unchanging. If he set his mind on it, it's going to happen. I can't change God's mind on anything. If he set a limit on my days, then there is nothing I can do to change his mind. He is God, Job is saying, and I am not. He is powerful, all-powerful, and I am not. So yes, I rightfully stand in fear of who He is. I tremble when I consider who God is. Verse 16, God has made my heart faint. In other words, it's actually written in the passive here, God has caused my heart to be weak or soft or vulnerable. The reality is that he shook my very core. Job realizes that God caused his state. Didn't know about the devil. Didn't know of the impact that God was uh, working behind the scenes through the hands of the enemy. Didn't matter to him. He understood that ultimately, above all things, God is sovereign. He says, the Almighty, the word uh, dealing with the faithfulness of God, the unchanging nature of the God who commits himself to his people, that one has caused me to be terrified. Look at verse 17. Yet I am not silenced because of the darkness, nor because of thick darkness. A A darkness covers my Face, In other words, I don't fear the circumstance or the result of the circumstance. I don't fear the affliction or death. I don't fear anything that happens in this life because I know who I trust in. I know who God is. He fears God, not things in life. What he does? That he will do. Uncontested. Unchallenged. Unchangeable in his mind and actions. God is absolute. Supreme. Unquestionable. Matchless and incomparable in all that he does. He alone is absolutely free to choose what he does over everything and in everyone's life. There is no one. Like God. His work and activity is both contained and limited by his own freedom to act. His own essence is his limitation and his freedom. Does that make sense? God alone limits his activity and is freed by his essence. God is the only limitation to his own activity, he's not limited by uh, morality. Even though he does limit himself to moral acts. God is not limited by anybody's perspective of him. God, I should say, the Lord, Yahweh, is the standard. He is free because he is the standard of his own perfections. And therefore, he acts consistently with his own perfections. What he does is perfect. Because by its very nature, it reflects His own absoluteness. His unchangeableness shows that his actions are perfect. Let's think about that. God's inability to change shows the fact that what is decided is perfect. Because if he has to change his mind about something, then it means that it was imperfect. He needs to correct what he has done. But because God sets his mind on something, It will always come about because he is perfect and his mind doesn't matter what it is. Whatever he sets his mind on, it is perfect. His unchangeableness shows that his actions are always perfectly true and complete. It does not need to change. It does not need altering. And I find this frustrating when I read scholars saying, well, God allowed changes to be made by means of inspiration um, later on because of how people understood things later on. So then whatever God said in the beginning, whatever he said initially was changed later on because people understood things differently later on. No. If God knew that they would understand things differently later on, and he does, why didn't he just say that from the beginning? God doesn't need to change anything that he says or that he does or that he sets his mind on. Because what he says, what he does and what he sets his mind on is a reflection of his immutability, of his unchangeableness. He doesn't need to change his mind because he's perfect. It is perfect from the moment it is decreed. Therefore, no one can come before him and negotiate a better plan. This is what Job is saying. I fear because once he set his mind on the number of my days, on the activity that he wants to get involved in, in my life, there is nothing I can do. His plan is the only plan because his plan reflects the absolute standard and his immutable character. His unchanging, indisputable character is seen in the fact that he never needs to change his plan. Secondly, God's immutability shows or manifests his consistency. Go over to Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah 43. I'm gonna read from verse one. But now, thus says Yahweh, who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Look not at look at verse five: fear not, for I am with you, and I will bring your offspring. From the east and from the west. I will gather you. Look at verse 11. uh, Verse 10. You are my witnesses declares Yahweh. And my servant whom I have chosen. That you may know and believe and understand that I am he. Before me. No God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am Yahweh. That is an interesting statement. I, I am, I am. That is what Yahweh means. I am. We get this name from Exodus chapter 3. You may know the situation where Moses is is wandering up the side of the mountain and he sees a, a, a tree burning. Takes off his shoes, goes to the tree and speaks to, firstly the angel of the Lord speaks to him from the tree and then it changed from the angel of the Lord to Yahweh speaking to him. And God sends him out to go and deliver his people. And God says to him, when they ask you who has sent you, you shall say, I am. That is his name. In the ancient Near Eastern context, they would define an Today we do the same thing. They would define the gods by what they do or the capacity to do. So you would say that uh, this is the God of rain or I am the God of rain or the God of fertility. I am the God of fertility, the God of grain or whatever it is. The gods would be said to be, I am the God of. It is always descriptive by what they did or what they are, um, have power over. I am able to do this and not that. I'm the God of the rivers and not the God of the land. But what God does here is very interesting. This is now in Exodus. When God first represents himself to Moses and to his people, he says, I am that I am. When you look at that construction, and some would say it's an incomplete verbal construction because I am is not a sentence, right? There's something missing. It needs to say, I am God of. But God defines himself by his own uh, nature. He says, I am. So if you want to complete the sentence and you, they ask you, who has sent you? You say, I am that I am has sent me. I am the very definition of what a God is. I am the very definition of Godness. So when God says here that I am Yahweh, I am, I am, he is defining his own existence. I am and I continue to be who I am. This is the very definition of what a God is. I am. God defines himself as the standard, the absolute standard of godness. I am he. In other words, beside me, there is no one. That's exactly what God says here. No other God beside me. No other savior but me. In verse 11, he says, I am, and beside me, there is no Savior. Look at verse 13. Also henceforth, I am he. There is none that can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? No one can deliver from my hand. This is actually a statement of comfort. What it means is that if God has secured them, and that's why he starts with fear not, because I have you and I have secured you as my own. And therefore, no one, no one can deliver you from my hand. No one can rescue you, take you from my grasp. This year, is in the context of what God will do in the midst of affliction. So as he's prophesying that they would go into affliction and suffering, he reveals his very nature to them. Notice in verse 14, this is what God says. Thus says Yahweh, your Redeemer, Remember who I am, the Holy One of Israel. Remember my nature. For your sake I send to Babylon. And bring them all down as fugitives. Even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. In other words, despite the fact that you will go into uh, Babylonian captivity, even despite the fact that the Chaldeans will overrun you, I am still God. Remember who I am, even though these afflictions will come on you. God says, what I do... No one can undo. If I bring about calamity and destruction, it will stand. It will be accomplished because that is my goal for you right now. Look at verse 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgression for my own sake. And I will remember your sins no more. I save, I forgive. The interesting thing is, if you read the book of John, um, there's at least seven um, cases, but one uh, comment, uh, one uh, article I read said that we sometimes dismiss the fact that Jesus uses I am in regular language um, more frequently in John than he does in any uh, of the other Gospels. This I am references is an exact phraseology of what, um, Isaiah speaks about concerning God. When he says, Yeah, I am ye, Jesus says that same thing, that exact same thing. Who blots out your transgression for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. It's about forgiveness. And yet, Jesus says that the Son of Man has power to what? Forgive sins on earth. I have come to seek and save. Over and over, John makes these claims because he, John, is identifying Jesus with the work of God and the person of God. God says, I am he who blots out sins for my own sake. And Jesus says the same thing, that I am he who is able to forgive sins. God goes on to explain what he will do to the leaders. Those princes who have exalted themselves. Notice what it says in verse uh, 16. Thus is Yahweh, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariots, chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down. They cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing; now it springs forth. Do not, uh, do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Jump down to verse twenty-two. Yet you do not call upon me, O Jacob; but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me. You have not brought me your, sleep, your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not brought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your Sins and wearied me with your iniquities. Despite the reality of who I am. Despite the fact that I have done all these things. You still sin against me and do not trust me. God is saying if you, if you know who I am. If you understand my nature, my character and my work. Why then do you still respond in the way that you do? Do you not understand that I am the one who forgives sins? Look at 28. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. Why? Because through affliction, and judgment upon Israel. God will shake the faith of those who are not true. They will depart. But those who are genuine. They will confirm their faith to God. Why does he act and do what he does? For his own namesake. God works for his own glory. In other words. He is perfectly consistent In his acts for himself. We on the other hand. Are not so consistent. That is the illustration that he gives here. Concerning Israel. They turn on him. Despite the reality that they know. That God is God. We like Israel. Do not demonstrate consistency before God. But God remains perfectly in balance. All the time. He always works to magnify his glory, glory, even if it includes hardship, suffering, affliction, exile or pestilence. Regardless of how life seems from our vantage point, regardless of how difficult it is, God is at work and that work demonstrates his consistency. Whether it is saving believers in the New Testament or saints in the Old Testament, God consistently saves for his own glory whether it is exile in the Old Testament or persecution in the New Testament, God consistently brings about hardship for His own glory. This, believers, is for our good. If God works for anything else, then that thing is preeminent. If God does not work for His own name, then He works for something else. But since He works for His own glory, for the glory of His name, That essence is for our good. In other words, if God is glorified in what he does, no matter how it may seem, that in itself is good for us. The supreme motive of God's activity is his glory. Whether it's cancer or COVID, whatever God does, Whatever disease it is. Somehow God magnifies his glory in it. When God reveals to Israel here in the book of Isaiah. That they will go through hardship. He says I do it for my own name's sake. Whatever God does. He does for his glory. Thirdly. God's immutability is seen through his infinite wisdom. Go to Psalm 147. God is not only absolute in power, consistent in his ways, but absolute in his understanding. God acts in consistency with his absolute unchanging knowledge and understanding. God never knows less and he never will know more. His knowledge is absolute. He is the standard of knowledge. He always knows all things. He's always absolute in wisdom. He's always absolute in understanding. He is the very standard of wisdom. He is the expression of understanding. Psalm 147. Praise the Lord. Why? For it is good to sing praises to our God. Why? For it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. This is what the psalm is about. That God deserves the praise. Praise Yahweh for it is good. To exalt our God. It is good to magnify his name. And now the rest of the psalm. Will express why God. Is worthy of praise. Verse 2. Yahweh builds up Jerusalem. And gathers the outcast. From Israel. Literally Yahweh. Rebuilds. Which is probably better. Since it deals with those. Who have been banished. Yahweh rebuilds the place of worship. He will bring them back. This second clause here, he gathers the outcasts of Israel, is intensified. Literally means that he gathers, collects, and wraps them together. He calls them up in a protective way. He wraps them in his arms and draws them close to himself and brings them to that place of worship. That is the idea. What is he saying? While we may be forced to be apart from the place of worship, from what God has established as His place to be, to be uh, where He ought to be worshipped, He will rebuild it, and He will gather His worshippers to gather in that place of worship. Their hope is not Jerusalem; their hope is their God, who will rebuild Jerusalem. Their anchor is set not in the knowledge of uh, uh, of the place but of the God who will rebuild that place. Despite the way that things seem, the author here, presumably David, since there is a connection between 145, 146 and 147, is saying that even though we may be separate from God's place of worship, God is still at work. Verse 3, he provides further reason why God must be praised and worshiped. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up the wounds. The word here for binds up or wraps up is the tender, loving, intimate, intimate care of God. God comes and wraps the wound when a nurse or a I don't know if doctors do it, but when a nurse comes and she wraps the wound, she's there personally, right next to you, taking the time to patiently, graciously, and tenderly wrapping up the wound. But what is the wound that is wrapping? Well, look at the text. He heals the broken heart. Those hearts which have been broken. Why? That have been rent, that have been torn into pieces, because of what has taken place in Jerusalem. Those ones he comes, he binds their sorrow. The idea here is that the bleeding wound, the bleeding wound, is their heart. Both the healing and the binding is the form uh, uh, um, is in a form that shows that God continually, as an ongoing characteristic act heals, and binds. This is who He is. He's a God who comes and comforts and soothes the painful, the paining heart. This is their anchor. This is why God is worthy of praise. Now think about this. The author is writing from a perspective that Jerusalem has somehow been damaged or um, they are not able to be in Jerusalem. Their hearts are, are broken because they cannot be there in the place of God. And he says, praise the Lord. Why? Because God comes with his healing, caring, personal gentle gentleness and attends to our wounds. Their anchor is their God. I think we can associate and identify with the author in some way. Even though the place of worship is not, in, is not important in our uh, context since we are not Jews. We do not go up to Jerusalem. But there is something to, that is precious to the believer when they gather together with the saints. And that has been ripped from us. And some of our hearts are aching. Some of our hearts are sorrowful because we cannot fellowship with God's people. God says that he gathers, sorry, he heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their sorrow. That is the anchor. God is the one who brings the comfort. It is not the fact that Jerusalem is still standing. It's not the fact that we still have a place to go to. The fact that we have a God who cares about our context is our anchor. Verse 4 and 5. Now the reason why God is worthy of praise. He determines the number of stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our God. And abundant in power. His understanding. Is beyond measure. Verse 4 and 5 provides one more reason. Why God's people should praise him. This is why. Because of his infinite knowledge and wisdom. What's the context? Removed from the place of worship. Hurting inwardly. Wounded in heart. Suffering. But what brings them comfort? Knowledge of God's absolute knowledge and wisdom. Notice what it says. He determines the stars. He determines the number of stars. He appoints how many stars there should be. And if that's not enough, he calls them all by name. It literally reads that he calls out to them their name. The force is here that he always calls out to them their name, which means he, he always knows the name of each and every star. Why would that be a comfort to God's people? what does it prove? Well number one, God's power, that he's able to call them out and they exist. Number two is understanding that there are so many millions of stars. Number three is wisdom. And I'll explain the wisdom in just a moment's time. In other words, if he knows every star, if he knows every single star by name, the scientist tells us that there are myriads and myriads of stars. They have not seen the edge of the universe. The minute they think they've come to the the edge of the universe, They see another galaxy or they see more millions of stars. It's endless, according to our understanding. Consider this. If in all the mess of this world, consider the context, removed from Jerusalem, suffering, hurting, if in all, the, in all the mess of this world, God has time for stars to call out their names, then surely, surely he cares for his own. God's unlimited power, knowledge, and infinite wisdom brings comfort and peace to the suffering saint. God's wisdom is never far from his might and his works. This is where wisdom comes in. Listen to Job With him are wisdom and might. To him belongs counsel and understanding. Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unfathomable, unfathomable are his ways. Why does he say that? Because whenever God acts, He acts in wisdom. Whenever God does, He does things in wisdom. He never does anything that needs to be amended later on because what He decreed is perfect. And so He always acts wisely. The author finds comfort in the reality that God has the time to sit and call out the names of every star and at the same time is intimately aware of our circumstance, binding up our hearts as we suffer. This is the greatness and the wisdom of God that nothing escapes His reality. There is nothing that is outside His capacity to control. That is the anchor to the soul. A.W. Tozer says, and I quote, Wisdom, among other things, is the ability to devise perfect ends and to achieve those ends by the most perfect means. It sees the end from the beginning so that there can be no need to guess or conjecture. Wisdom sees everything in focus each in proper relation to all, and thus able to work toward predestined goals with flawless precision." Wow! Amen! God knows the end and knows every detail that needs to take place in order for that end to be achieved. That is wisdom. And so he demonstrates that he's working to that end by putting things in place so that that end may be achieved. The author says, You, God, g- sorry, great is our Lord and abundant in power, his understanding is beyond measure. We don't know what he's doing, but it is comforting to know that he knows what he's doing. In other words, what he does, he does perfectly. He does consistently with his immutable nature. He does not ever have to question if he did the right thing. God's wisdom is in perfect balance with his immutability. That is why he does not need to change. And that is why he does not ever have to change his plan. Because his wisdom is an expression of his immutability. And his immutability is demonstrated in his understanding. And his understanding demonstrates his knowledge. And his knowledge reflects his immutability. God is an enclosed circle that demonstrates that all that he does, he does perfectly. That, believers, is comfort to our hearts. Why? Because we live in a world that is messy. It is chaotic from our standpoint, and yet God is in absolute control of every detail. Whether it is the fall of man or the future of mankind, God's wisdom knows the end from the beginning. He sets the course and the outcome. Whether it includes the three in the beginning and includes the three at the end. God works all things for His glory. Now I can go on and on through the psalm. Because what He does, he, He just keeps on going back to the fact that this is why God is worthy of praise. Because of who He is and what He does. When I began, I said... That doesn't matter if it's prophecy of exile or, uh, about exile or affliction, such as in Job's case. What seems to be consistent in every situation is that God reveals the nature of his essence as a comfort to his people. If you want comfort in a time such as this, know your God. We can go on, but the main point becomes evident. Understanding, knowing the truth about the essence and the nature of God's perfections, God's activity should bring comfort to our hearts. Regardless of the nature of the affliction or the circumstance in life. When we know our God, we can be confident that what he does is perfect, even though it may include affliction, suffering, hardship. But the reverse is also true. If God's people do not know their God, if they do not know his perfections, if they don't know his activity, that is working towards a future goal perfectly without question, they will have no peace. They will always be shifting and changing like the sands of time. The only steady anchor for the soul is God's immutable character. Finally, God's immutable immutable glory is magnified in affliction. Numbers 23. Regardless of the circumstance, what God works towards is perfect. Therefore, His immutable glory becomes magnified in the midst of affliction. Verse 19. God is not man that he should lie, or the Son of Man that he should change his mind. He has said, and will he not do it? Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Just pause there for a moment. In this context here, we have Balak, a prophet, being asked by Balaam to curse the nation of Israel. But he can't. Whenever he opens his mouth, blessing comes out. However, what we have here is an admission of the perpetual providential care of God towards His people. God is not like man. God does not have the impulses of man, nor does He possess the ability to change His mind. Let that wrap around your mind. If He set His mind on something, it will come to pass. If he plans, he will execute it. If he decrees, it will be fulfilled. Literally, to those of you who are covenantal in your faith. Notice again verse 20. This unbelieving man, we do not know if he became a believer because of what he says about God, but he says a number of truthful Aspects about God. Take note. Behold. I received a command to bless. He has blessed. And I cannot revoke it. If God has blessed. There is no turning it around. Doesn't matter what I say. Doesn't matter what I try to do. This is what God has chosen to do. It will be. Even amid. Opposition. God is bound to his consistent nature and therefore he commits to being faithful to his people even though they are unfaithful to him. God is consistent in his actions. He is consistent in his work for his people. Did I say Balak was a prophet? I just noticed. Did I say that? It was Balaam. The Lord met, verse 16, Balaam, and put a word in his mouth and said, Return to Balak, thus you shall speak. God gave him, whether unbeliever or believer, I believe he was an unbeliever, this word concerning God's own nature. They are suffering. They are being opposed. What does God reveal? Not the end, but himself. God shows to them that he is the one who commands all things. Balaam says, God is not like man. He can never, ever lie. He doesn't change his mind. Why does he say that? Well, first of all, because God is absolutely consistent. If he's determined to do something, he will do it. But God determined that Israel would be his people. And he hasn't changed his mind. Now, there's obviously a theological discussion regarding Moses and Abram, and we will get maybe to that on, on Wednesday. But God never changes his mind. And this becomes the comfort for God's people. Doesn't matter the situation. Doesn't matter the opposition. If you know who God is, that should comfort you. This is confirmed in Isaiah 55. <clears throat> See. 55 is 9. Notice what God says. I'm going to read verse 8. For, your, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares Yahweh. ESV says it this way neither are your ways my ways. For even uh, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours and my thoughts than your thoughts. Implication is my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Now take note at verse 10. For as the rain and the snow comes down from heaven and does not return, meaning going back up to the heavens, but. Uh, return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower, and bread to the eater. So shall my word that goes out of my mouth. So shall my word. So shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. But I, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing which I send it. As the rain comes down and waters the earth, as the forces of nature does what it is instructed to do, so my purposes will be fulfilled. Whatever God decrees, will succeed. Why? Because God is unchangeable. He is consistent. He determines and it is final. There is only one option. That is God's option. There is no plan B for God. I've heard so many people saying that um, after the fall, God had to choose plan B for humanity. No, this is plan A. This has always been the plan. He doesn't have to change his mind. He doesn't have to change his plans because God is infinitely wise and so he knows how it should end and so decrees how it should begin. Yes, it may include opposition. Yes, it may include affliction. Yes, it may include suffering. Despite that, God works to magnify his Nature. This is the cause of praise and rejoicing. The unfailing, immutable character of God. Israel found comfort in the knowledge of who God is. That is why you will find over and over throughout scripture, the immutable character of God, the unchanging nature of God being emphasized. Why? Because if God is unchanging, then you can trust him. Then you can hope in the plan that he has for this world, for our lives, for the church, for Israel, because it will come to pass. God is consistent. God's Absolute otherness is set against the dark days of suffering. This is what Isaiah is prophesying in. In the context of such hardship, God remains faithful. He remains consistent. In the case of Numbers 23, even though there's opposition, it is God who remains faithful. He remains consistent. He blesses and it will remain a blessing. God's perpetual ongoing concern for his people is the hope, is the consolation, is the cause for joy and the foundation upon which his people build their hope. In days like these, we need to do what God's people are instructed to do. Look to God. Look At his perfections. Look at his power. Look at his providence. Look at his perfect plan being revealed. And the rest in the reality that though this world may change. And though it may seem like things are falling apart. God is still in absolute control. Though anxiety and fear on various issues now it may not be that some of you are fearful of COVID, and some of you may be but there may be anxiety about other things in your life what is it that that is your anchor in times like that what is it that can cause you to as psalm 147 says praise the lord what is it that causes you to rejoice despite the fact that things are causing you much anxiety? James 1.17 What does it tell us about God? That He is a God who never changes. When Jesus speaks about the fact that believers in Matthew chapter 6, were concerned about where they would sleep, what they would eat, what, would, what they would wear. What is it that he leans on? Do you not know that your Father in heaven knows exactly what you need? God's infinite wisdom and knowledge and understanding. Do you not understand that he will, if he cares for the, the, the lilies, And the birds, would he not care for you? If he's so wise in acting on behalf of animals, surely he would be wise in acting on behalf of his children. God's nature and character is the comfort to the child of God. In other words, if this is how God consistently cares for his creation, surely you will care much more for his image bearers. God remains the same in all that he does. We don't. Our views change, our devotion changes, our activities changes, our faithfulness changes, our hairstyles change, and thankfully it does. Otherwise we would have a lot of mic heads running around. It is in our nature to, to change. How we treat people, the church, those who suffer, it change, it changes. Sometimes for the good and sometimes for the worse. We are subject to change just like this world. Therefore, what we need to hold on is to an unchanging, immutable God. Listen to this. Hebrews 13.8 Jesus Christ is the same yesterday today and f- we know that right forever well wait wait a minute wait a minute let's think about this jesus christ jesus the man christ the messiah this person who is god and man in one is the same is a statement of fact a statement of reality is forever the same today Uh, Yesterday, today, and forever. But wait, how is it that Jesus is the same? Didn't he grow up as a child, become a young man, and then die as a person? Didn't his body then change? How is this true of Jesus? I know some of you theologians were thinking that. Well, this statement exists to show that Jesus by his very essence is what? God. Because God by his very essence is what? Unchanging. So therefore, Jesus Christ is by definition just like God is, which means that Jesus Christ is what? God. This is not a change in essence for Jesus to go from babyhood to adulthood. That's a change in Nature, but not a change in essence. His divine nature remained unchanged. Why? Because Jesus is immutable. This is not talking about a change in visage or appearance, but a, an unchanging nature or essence. God made himself known as a human in the Old Testament. Did that change him? No. God revealed himself as an angel in the Testament. Did that change him? No. Even though there was a change in form, there was still a consistency in essence. His divine essence remains unchanged and that is what the author of Hebrews is saying. This is who you are tempted to leave. Jesus Christ, who is God, the immutable one. So don't you dare turn your back on him. This is, is our anchor. We trust in an unchangeable. Unchanging God. I'm going to end with the same quote. Just a little bit more elaboration on that quote. So when I started. Spurgeon goes on to say. But while the subject. Quote unquote of God humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and Him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead in the glorious Trinity, nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. And while and whilst humbling and expanding, this subject is eminently consolatory. Oh there is in contemplating Christ, a balm for every wound, in musing on the Father, there is quietus. for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Spirit, there is a balsam for every soul. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go, plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing that can can so comfort the soul. So calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief. So speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. It is to that subject that I invite you this morning. End quote. This is no different today as it did in the day of Spurgeon. A true investigation of the nature and the person of God is the anchor and comfort and consolation to the soul of man. If we keep on keeping our eye on this culture, on the shifting Changes in society and this world. We will always be disillusioned. We will always be in fear. We will always be running for fear. But if your eyes and hearts are set steadfastly on the unchanging God. Then nothing can move your conviction in God. Father thank you for who you are. Thank you for the revelation that Jesus Christ is in essence exactly the same as you. Thank you, Father, that we, though this world may seem like it's falling apart, can entrust to you our souls, can entrust to you our circumstances. Lord, there are those of us who are anxious about various things in life, various uh, triggers that cause us to be fearful, to be anxious, to be worried, Lord. We pray that our souls would find comfort in the reality of your immutability. We pray for those who are not yours, those who are not uh, children of God yet. And we pray that you would bring them to come to know what it means to trust in an unchanging God. The one who knows the plan who executes the plan, the one who knows the end and therefore perfectly brings about every eventuality that should take place so that his plan is executed perfectly. This is comforting to us. Despite the fact that this world is fearful of dying from COVID, we can be comforted by the reality that this is not beyond your control. Regardless of what it is, Lord, We commit ourselves to you. Whatever causes us fear and anxiety, we flee to you, for you are the only unchanging person in all of creation. Teach us what it means to trust in this. Help us to entrust our lives to you, fully and faithfully, pursuing a greater and deeper understanding of your nature. As we seek to honor you. Pray for your glory in all things. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.